something that was really powerful. The soccer teams, together with this adoption support group, would work with the older kids that needed to be adopted. So they would record videos with them, just asking them to talk about themselves, talk about their dreams. The kids would go into the field with the players, and some of the videos would be shown so everyone in the stadium would see that. We placed 25 teenagers in this program. They were teenagers, Chris, that would age out, you know, in residential homes, all of them. And out of these 25, in one year and a half, 18 of them were adopted. Welcome to the MindShift podcast. I'm Chris Kandaya. Around the world, there are around 5.4 million children in orphanages. Each year, millions of pounds and dollars are sent to support orphanages and thousands of people volunteer or visit them. The best evidence shows that orphanages are not good for children and there are far better ways for vulnerable children to be cared for. A mind shift is needed and that's why this podcast exists. One of the exciting things about this movement to see children go home from orphanages to be reunited to their parents or to move forward into new local families is this isn't just an idea that's taking off in the Western world. And so it's super exciting to spend time with Sara Vargas, who's the director of the Bridges of Love initiative in Brazil. Sara's an adoptive mother. She has four children, three through adoption and one through birth. She is super passionate about transforming the lives of Brazilian children and particularly those children that are currently in orphanages. You're going to love listening to Sarah's energy and enthusiasm for helping the children of the world and particularly of Brazil. So I'm sitting with Sara Vargas from Bridges of Love and she's the project director for that and I'm so excited to meet you because we're going to be having a conversation about family-based care. I've been asking everyone what some of their earliest childhood memories are. So what would yours be, Sarah? Uh, I am the youngest of three, a family with three siblings, three children. So I am the youngest in my house. And there was this big difference of age between me and my brother and sister. They were already 14 and 15 when I was born. So I was almost the only kid in my home. (laughs) So I remember my grandfather playing a lot with me. He was a great reference, you know. And he was always trying to find something fun for us to do. He had this little farm. And he would make me toys and things like that. That was so precious because as he would do that, I felt that I was the most important person in the world Mm -hmm. because he was spending his time with me, giving me his whole attention. And that was so precious. And he was the person that really taught me the Word of God. Every morning we would wake up, sit down to have breakfast, and he would open the Bible and teach us something about the Bible. You know, and that was great. (laughs) That's amazing. We often think about children in institutional care losing their parents and sometimes losing their siblings but your story reminds us of the multi-generations that these children will lose there's something very powerful about a grandparent figure often in the UK children would say they have a more trusted relationship with their grandparents sometimes and even with their parents sometimes grandparents in the UK have had marriages that have lasted well the next generation haven't. It's interesting that for you, your grandparent was like a spiritual mentor as well. Mm -hmm. 
So it's another loss that children in institutional care suffer. What was it for you that helped you have a mind shift in this area? What was it that activated you to care about vulnerable children? Well, since before we got married, Rodrigo, my husband, and me, we always wanted to have biological children and adoptive children. Mm. In that time, we didn't think so much what was the reason. I think the strongest reason so far was that if God being God decided to build a family and he He did that through adoption. It's because adoption is an excellent way. Later on, I found out that my father, he became an orphan when he was eight years old. In the same year, he lost his father in an accident, and he lost his mother because she got ill and she was dead. And they were nine siblings, so it was kind of a large family. He was one of the youngest ones, and so they were split into their uncle's and aunt's house. And it was not easy for them because he felt that he was not welcome, you know. It was like, well, they had to do that for me, but it was not their choice. Later on, his oldest sister started taking care of them until he turned turned 18 and he got into the Brazilian army and he says that the Brazilian army was his mother mm. and in one sense I think that's so cold <laughs> mm. you know mm. to have the army as your mother and it always bothered me so I felt that my father was a great father but it was hard for him to hug to hold us on his lap you know Brazilians are very touchy people you yeah. know you like yeah. to hug to kiss but he was kind of resistant to that and I was the daughter that would break that a little bit with mm. him you know maybe because I was was the youngest. I was uh, insistent with that. But then one day I realized that all of this matter of orphanhood in my life, in part, was because I felt the pain of my father's orphanhood, you know. That's fascinating, isn't it? That, again, generationally, things that happened to your father had an impact on your upbringing. And so, again, when we think about helping a vulnerable child, we might not just be helping them, but the generations that come after them. In the UK care system, in our family, the children that we've fostered or adopted, they're often children of people who were taken away from their parents mm -hmm. because of abuse or neglect. Mm -hmm. So it seems very cyclical. In one sense, it's the outworkings of something terrible that happened to a child having ramifications for many generations to come. It's interesting about your dad's experience of kinship care. In many cultures around the world, If something terrible happens, like your dad to be orphaned, it's not unusual for the extended family to step in and to care. I was speaking to some friends in Mexico about this, and in some parts of Mexico, the children that go to live with aunties and uncles are not treated as full sons and daughters, mm -hmm. but may have more of a secondary status. Sometimes that even feels like almost becoming a kind of household servant rather than a child. Is that the case in Brazil? or did your father just have an unusual experience of kinship care? No, I think my father's situation was not an exception, you know. And what he always told me is that his pain was that because he knew that he was not desired, that it was not a will of this family to have him with them. So it was not that they were mean with him, but many times he felt that he was treated a little bit different. We know that in many families, in many kinship care in Brazil, sometimes they put the child as sort of like a servant, someone that will help with doing house things, you know, like washing the dishes, ironing the clothes and things like that. And they're not treated as the real child, you know? Yes. So that's 
crucial, you know, in a relationship. A child, every child needs to have an adult that really loves and cares for this child and that is always there for them. This relationship is forever. So that's what a child needs. And I completely agree with you. In Brazil, it's the same. Most of our children, they're not orphans. Mm -hmm. They do have their father, their fathers, their mothers, but they're vulnerable, right? They have suffered abuse, violence, neglect. And when you bring one of these children to a real family, a family that will love and care, mm-hmm. you're breaking a cycle of violence, of mm-hmm. abuse, of neglect. Because this mother, this biological mother, she couldn't take care of this kid because she was not taken care of. Yeah, that's so hard. I think within the kind of care reform sector and the growing movement there is amongst Christians around the world on this issue, the idea of supporting and encouraging kinship care, so wider family to care for children if children are bereaved or if they've been abused and neglected sometimes doesn't get the focus it should and when you tell me about some of the bad aspects of kinship care in some cultures part of me wants to say well okay it doesn't have to be like that is there a way that we could inspire encourage equip wider family not to see this as a burden is there a way that we could help children to understand that okay this might not have been the first choice but still the parents that they now have love them and care for them so the kinship care space I think is often neglected in the UK it's becoming more a first choice for the government Mm -hmm. and sometimes that's financially motivated because a child in the care system is very expensive Mm -hmm. and if someone from the wider family takes care of these children then that's off the accounts of the government and it's onto the family Mm -hmm. and again that's unfair sometimes too because kinship families do need support financially Mm -hmm. in order to be able to make this possible so have you seen good examples where there has been interventions to try and help kinship care to work better? Yeah I really believe that reunification needs to be tried you know and if the biological parents cannot take care of these kids we need to look for their extended family. What I miss many times in Brazil you know is for example when you're going to adopt a child you need to be certified for that right? And for that certification, you need to go into training. And that is so good. That's so important. Because in this training, the families get to know something about the trauma impacts in the life of the child. They're called to think about their motivations and so on. So I believe that we need to also require training for kinship families. You know, that would be so important. And not only training, but also support. Mm. Because that would change the reality. I think you're right. In my context, it's optional Mm -hmm. if you are a kinship carer there's no requirement on you to have training so I've seen some sad situations we looked after a little boy that we came to love very much and he ended up being cared for by his aunt and uncle but because his name was close in name to their son's name they changed this boy's name Mm -hmm. And you think, hold on, this little boy's already had the trauma of not living with his mum and dad. He'd had eight different homes. And, you know, his whole identity was in question. And then to be given another name doesn't sound like mm-hmm. you're adapting around the child. The child's adapting around you. Yes. And so maybe with some training and some support, yeah. that family might have made a different decision. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think if we can find a way, it could be by tying the training and the support together. Sometimes people, the economics are what helps change people's minds, sadly. So if you know you don't qualify for the support unless you get the training, mm-hmm. that might be a way forward. I remember when I first became a foster carer, I went to the training seminar and I was very arrogant. 
I thought, hold on, I, I have had three birth children already. What can you tell me about parenting? But I was not trauma informed. I didn't realize that you need a whole different set of skills around children that have had early trauma. And so maybe that's part of the challenge too, is that a lot of kinship care as well. I know this child, it's my nephew and niece, but you don't necessarily understand or empathize with what they've experienced. We do have a problem in Brazil. Sometimes people consider that just because we're the same blood, we're family, we're supposed to be the answer, you know. And we know that if there's not love, if there is not the intention of taking care of that kid, it's not going to work because there is a cost to have one more child in our family. And I'm not talking about economical costs. I'm talking about relational costs, about investing time, investing, being patient, helping the child to thrive and so on. So many times what happens is the government comes to a grandmother, for example, and asks her to take care of this kid or these kids. And they're like six, seven, eight, and she'll take them. Then when they get to 11, 12, that is the age when they start asking about everything, presenting some more Mm -hmm. difficult behaviors. Then this grandmother gives up because she says, oh, they're not my problem, you know. And so then we have this kid that is older, again, in a, resi- in a residential home, okay? Sometimes it's a good group of siblings. Of course, it's harder to find. It's another rupture for the kid. It's yes. another trauma. And it's harder to find an adoptive family for the kid also. So it is a serious issue that we really need to think and to work on that seriously, right? I'm with you. Can you help us get a picture of what the care situation is like in Brazil? Mm -hmm. How normal is it to use institutional care for children? Do we have a sense of the numbers of Mm -hmm. kids in institutional care? Is foster care widely used and accepted? What's the cultural response to adoption? Could you give us a bit of a picture? Yeah, sure. As I told you, Brazil is a huge country. There are almost 210 million people in Brazil. And we only have about 50,000 kids in care. So as you can see, if you compare to England, the number is really small. And the problem is that we are not protecting our kids Mm. the way that we should. There are a lot of kids that should be in residential homes, in foster homes, and they're not. Uh, A good thing is that we do not have those big orphanages anymore. Mm. According to our law, residential homes can receive only up to 20 kids. And usually there is a difference of age. So if a residential home receives kids between 0 to 12 or from 12 to 18. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are some groups of siblings that they're supposed to be together, so sometimes you have some exceptions. Foster care is something that has been in our law for 10 years already, but Mm -hmm. only now it's starting to grow. So there is this big effort of our government now on foster care because we really understand it's necessary, it's best for the children. We still face a lot of cultural resistance, you know, people don't Mm -hmm. understand Mm -hmm. how come a kid is going to be temporarily in a family, it's going to be another rupture you know Mm -hmm. people think ask a lot about that so we explain to them how damaging it is for a kid to stay in a residential home right for their development it's much better when they are in a family house and the foster family is not supposed to stop being present in the life of that kid after the kid goes on right so as we are a Latin American country, we use a lot that expression of godparenting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we say that the foster parents, they should become like godparents of this kid, yeah. right? Okay. And be this reference for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we hope. Amazing. Oh, lots to talk about there. So the UK has a population of about 60 million people, but we have over 100,000 children 
in the care system, assuming that all of our cultures have both wonderful things and difficult things, it would be unusual that there would only be 50,000 children Mm -hmm. in a country of 200 million. So it sounds like there's greater need for kind of stronger child protection policies and monitoring. Of the 50,000 children that are in care, do you know what the split is between those institutions and those in foster care? Yes, less than 10% of them are in foster families. So we're really in the beginning, you know, but it's been growing. That's exciting, you know. Like two years ago, we were probably with about 5% of kids only in in foster families. So it's growing. There is a consistent growth. We're having many big seminars about foster care with important key people so people are really changing their minds and putting in their state and city's plan you know this aim of starting foster Mm -hmm. care programs so that's good so out of these 50,000 kids who are in our protection system 9,000 of them are ready to be adopted we do have about 35,000 people that want to adopt Okay, so we have more people that want to adopt than kids to be adopted. The thing that sometimes it doesn't match is because the kids who are available for adoption, they are older or groups of siblings or children with health issues. A good news is that now we have in Brazil 170 adoption support groups linked to our national organization, you know. They're spread all over the country. We are still a small number for the size of the country, but we can see that where there are these adoption support groups, they do a very good job on talking to the society about the real kids. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we're looking for families for children. We're not looking for children for families. One thing that we... It was a great thing for Brazil is that we've been advocating for... So that our government would allow these children who are ready to be adopted to allow them to talk about themselves, Mm. to show who they Mm. are, you know, Mm. and to introduce them to the families that want to adopt. There was this big resistance in the beginning, Mm. but now they're allowing that more and more, Mm. and we can see older kids being adopted, groups of siblings, children with health issues being adopted, Mm. so there are lots and lots and lots of good stories, so we're kind of changing that a little bit, and that's really exciting. So I understand that over recent years there's been some quite big changes in the kinds of children that are getting adopted? Yes, we have the statistics from eight years ago and for now, okay? So eight years ago, only 9% of the families would be open to adopt groups of siblings, and now they're 38.5%. So talking about older children, now almost 40% of the families are open to adopt older children. And another big issue used to be the racial issues. So eight years ago, less than 7% of the families would be open to adopt black kids, for example. Mm. And nowadays, 60% of the families, they have no resistance about racial issues. So a big change. These are incredible. I mean, what do you think were the main things that led to that shift? I think it's talking to the society, bringing to media, you know, this subject of adoption and about talking about the real kids, the real Mm. children. Mm. And also bringing together these families that want to adopt and families that already adopted, Mm. you know, because Mm. that breaks a lot of prejudice, a lot of resistance, many myths that we have about adoption. 
So you think there's been a number of, is it an advertising campaign or has it been documentaries? What kind of media stuff has made the difference? Lots of interviews, TV yes. interviews, radio yes. interviews, podcasts, yeah. and something that was really powerful. We built in many states in Brazil a partnership with the justice and the soccer teams. Mm. You know that soccer is something really important yeah, for Brazil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the soccer teams would, together with this adoption support group, work with the older kids that needed to be adopted. So they would like record videos with them, but doing that in a kind way, mm -hmm. just asking them to talk about themselves, talk about their dreams. There were no promises, you know, it's just, would you like to talk about yourself, to make a video, to show people who you are? Mm -hmm. And they would say, yes, we would love that. And then they would say that they like playing the guitar, that mm -hmm. they like music, that they like mm -hmm. dancing, soccer, talking about their dreams. And so these videos would be on the soccer team's website. Mm -hmm. The kids would go into the field with the players, you know, yeah. and some Some of the videos would be shown during the breaks, the game breaks, you know, so everyone in the stadium would, would see that. And because of that, many of them were adopted. Wow. Only in my state, for example, we placed 25 teenagers in this program. They were teenagers, Chris, that would age mm. out, you mm. know, in residential homes, mm. all of them. And out of these 25, In one year and a half, 18 of them were adopted. We're so glad. I'm so proud of saying that. And there is one story that really touched my heart of a 16-year-old boy called Carlos. Carlos is from Belo Horizonte in Brazil. And he was a black guy on a wheelchair with health issues, you know. So the team that was organizing, you know, this program, they thought, oh, let's not place him because he's going to be disappointed. He's going to see his friends going and he's going to stay. But this boy, he had three dreams. He was uh, Cruzeiro. Cruzeiro is the name of this mm -hmm. soccer team. He was a big fan. So one of his dreams was to meet the players, the Cruzeiro players. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have a family. And as he's from Belo Horizonte, that is a city that is inside the country, he would love to go to the beach because he had never been to the coast. Wow. So they placed him because they said, well, at least he's going to have one of his dreams fulfilled. Yeah, he's going to beat the players, the right? Yeah, yeah. And so they did it. Well, what was the surprise. He got to meet all the players. Mm -hmm. He got to have pictures with all of them. Less than one year later, he was adopted wow. by a family from the south of Brazil that <laughs> lives on the coast. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, one year yeah. after he was adopted, he got really ill mm. and he passed away. Oh. But this mm. boy, he had all of his dreams wow. fulfilled. Wow. That's incredible. What a lovely partnership between the wider society, sports, government, in order to make that happen. That's fantastic. Within Brazil, the church is strong. There are lots and lots of Christians. 50,000 children in the care system, only 9,000 available for adoption, more foster carers needed. What are you seeing in terms of a mind shift in the church on these issues? Well, we have more than 60 million Christians in Brazil. So I really believe that the Brazilian church needs to take its role. It's really easy for us to change the reality. And even of those kids that are not in our system yet, the church goes there, is there in the society relating to these families. So I believe we need to be more involved, you know. Right now, trying to encourage the Brazilian church to get more involved, trying to bring more awareness about the reality of 
of orphan and vulnerable children in Brazil and how the church can get involved. We're excited about a big event that we're going to have in February. It's called The Sand, and we're going to receive uh, something like 150,000 people in three stadiums. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Huh. And probably about 200,000 people are going to be watching that on the internet, you know, mm. so it's huge. Mm. And The Sand is bringing four outcomes. The aim of The Sand is to call the Christian church to become active mm. so that we're going to change our world, change society yeah. and so yeah. on. And there are four outcomes, you know, to send people to universities, mm. to send people to schools, high schools, mm. to send people to missions, mm. in-country missions and missions in other countries, and to send people to care for the orphan and oh, vulnerable. Wow. So that's amazing. Yeah. And we're excited about that. We really see that this is an answer for our prayers. Mm. And we believe the Brazilian church is going to have a shift soon. Yes. I hope yes. the next time that we talk, I have <laughs> some good news. <laughs> what do you think some of the barriers are? What's stopping the Brazilian church? Because, you know, as a Christian, we know this is central to God's heart. It's in the Bible. The Brazilians love the Bible. So what has been some of the challenges? Well, Chris, it hurts to me to say that many of our Brazilian Christians, they are looking too much to their own needs. You know, that kind of Christianity that... God came to bless me, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we, we have challenges on that. But I started praying about that. And God clearly spoke to me and my husband, how would they know if there is nobody to preach? Mm-hmm. So we're taking our role, you know, mm-hmm. going there now and sharing and, and preaching. And we're excited because things are beginning to happen. We brought Orphan Sunday to Brazil, mm-hmm. and it's been a, an important tool to open the doors of the churches, you know, to talk about the orphan mm-hmm. vulnerable. But I believe also there is this wrong belief that, well, if I adopt a kid, I'm bringing someone that comes from a different family and then maybe there is this curse over this family. So we need to reflect a little Mm -hmm. bit more that Mm -hmm. the sacrifice of Jesus Christ already broke all the curse and that we are light and salt and we are going to bless this kid. It sounds like there's a need for some theological shift that we might understand what discipleship is, that it's God's plan is to bless us. He loves us, but that doesn't mean he doesn't call us to difficult things and to part of his discipling of us is to send us to the vulnerable and to show radical hospitality. So it sounds like there might need to be some theological interventions in a way that's accessible to people that they might kind of grab this. It's incredible work you're doing, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything that you think our listeners need to hear that you haven't had a chance to say yet? Well, I just want to say that I am an adoptive mother. We have four kids. Our oldest is Lucas. He's 20. He's the only one that is biological. And we have three 17-year-old girls. And I can tell you that our life is so precious because we have our kids. Sometimes it gets really hard, really challenging, but we would not lose the opportunity of having the joy, you know, of being parents of these four wonderful kids. So I challenge you, if you're thinking about that, Try to talk to someone that knows a little bit about adoption, about uh, orphan vulnerable children support, and pray about it, but also get in action. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Sarah, God bless your work. It's fantastic what you're doing, and what an incredible shift you're bringing in your nation to see people open to take siblings and people from different races. As you look at the number 60 million Christians and 9,000 children available for adoption, That really is doable. So God bless you and all that you're doing. Thank you, Krish. God bless you. And I wish you can come and share something with us in Brazil (laughs) soon also. (laughs) Up there. 
I was struck by the passion that Sara Vargas brings to this initiative. And how about that for an ambition to help the dreams of children come true, whether that dream is to have a family or whether for Carlos, he got to meet his football team, to see a beach and to be adopted. And all three of those were realised before he died. What a fantastic vision, what a fantastic way of investing your life. And so I wonder, are you inspired by what Sara is challenging us to do, to see how we play our part? She's challenging the 60 million Christians in Brazil to play their part. What about us, the rest of us? What's our role? Well, you can find out how you play your part by tuning in to the next edition of the MindShift podcast. But also, we'd love for you to go to the homecomingproject.org and sign up for our learning journey where you can find out how you can be upskilled to know how you can invest your time and energy to make sure children get the loving homes that they need. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.